the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the, me- the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so much that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a wonderful week as we now get ready to hear God's word being publicly preached as it was just read. Would you now bow your heads and join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy, for they are new every morning. And Lord, how we need it, how we need your faithfulness to be upon us every moment of our very lives. God, we pray that you would bless us now as we consider your word. Father, your word is what guides us, it is what leads us, and it leads us to the pathway of hope, of peace, of mercy, of love, of renewal. And Lord, we pray that in spite of how we may have lived these past six days, that we come to you on this day, your Lord's day, to be refreshed, to be renewed, to be empowered and equipped in living the life that you have called us to live so that in our lives, those who are influenced by it would be blessed and encouraged and it would point to the one who is the true hope of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, today is a very important day in the life of our church because as it was announced, we are having a very special congregational meeting right after this service. Uh, Jay uh, was a little bit off on the details. We are meeting right after the service, so as soon as the benediction is given, please stay seated and we're going to go straight into our meeting. But it is a meeting where you as a congregation, as a ministry, will be confirming or not the conviction that the leadership that I, as your pastor, have felt God has called us to live out, which is becoming our own independent church. This is a very important day for us. And to take this opportunity, I wanted to use the scripture passage that has really been the blueprint that I have utilized as the lead pastor of this church for almost a decade here. My conviction is that this passage has really been the guiding principle that has shaped and and helped me decipher what it is God has called us to be as a church, as a ministry, for the glory of God. So without further ado, there are three things that I'd like to share with you in the hopes that it would help you better understand and be fully informed uh, in light of our upcoming vote. So three things I'd like to share with you today. Number one, 
why the world needs the church. Number two, what the world needs the church to do. And finally, how the church is able to meet this need. Why the world needs the church, what the world needs the church to do, and finally, how the church is able to meet this need. Let's jump right in. First, why the world needs the church. Just a little over five months ago, Huffington Post, of all newspapers, came out with an article entitled, in the form of a question, Why Don't We Go to Church Anymore? And in this article, it cited five main reasons, according to a recent survey research that was done, five reasons why most people today in the Western world no longer go to church. And there they are right there. Reason number one, social pressure is gone. There was a time in our cultural history where people were pressured to go to church. Don't believe me, case in point. You know, back in the 1950s, and I got this from Tim Keller, is that In the 50s, you had a better chance of getting a bank loan approved if you were a member of the local church within the neighborhood. Believe it or not, yeah. If you wanted to get these kinds of civic social benefits, you had to be members of the church. If the bank tried to pull that off today, you could actually sue the church for more money than what you were going to get in the loan that you're trying to get, right? Social pressure today is gone where this need or this pull to participate in the work of the church, the life of the church is no longer there. Number two, there's nothing else to do. There was a time where literally Sunday mornings, nothing was available. There wasn't any football games, baseball games on in the morning. All major businesses were closed. And if you were a young family with crazy kids running all over the place and you knew the local church there had, you know, child care and Sunday school, you better believe you're going to go to Sunday school, man. You know, you would just go because there was simply nothing else to do and you were just confined into doing anything else. There was no competition for the church at a certain season of American history. Number three, mobility. Mobility has increased in our day and age where people are constantly traveling over and over for vacation spots, for work, where people are traveling every Sunday for their kids' sports games and all the other extracurricular activities that they're involved in. Mobility has increased as the years have gone by. And number four, work. Yes, work. Sunday is the new Monday, especially here in New York City, to where if you want to get ahead, if you want to get that job promotion, if you want to get that title or status in the workplace, you got to get ahead, which means you have to put in extra hours that Monday through Saturday simply does not provide you with. And so you go into office on Sundays or you remotely work in your home office on Sundays, and church is simply not on your radar. And then finally, number five, Family, And, of course, this is the natural outcome when all you do is work or all you do is play. The only seemingly time you have to be with your family is on the day where you should be with God's people worshiping with your family. And so, as a result, they say, well, I don't want to go to church because I barely have time to see my kids. And this is the day where I want to spend my time with my children. These are the five reasons that, according to a recent study, say why most Westerners no longer go to church anymore. And based on these five reasons, you can easily extrapolate an underlying message behind it, which is the church is no longer needed. The world no longer needs a church. It is no longer relevant anymore because all the needs that people look to the church to fulfill have been provided through other organizations, other institutions, or because the culture has shifted so much... The need of the church is no longer there anymore. But I am convinced that if you gave this list of reasons to the Apostle Paul in an attempt to persuade him that the world no longer needs the church, he would not agree to it. He would not buy into it one bit. And the reason why I know this is because of what he says in verse 14. Can we have our passage up there, please? 
verse 14. Look at what he says there. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Here in this verse, Paul is describing the condition that the world is currently living in. Okay, he uses the metaphor of a mighty sea where there are crashing waves, where there are destructive winds to where no matter how much you try to avoid, no matter how much you try to overcome, no matter how much you try to push through it, you are utterly hopeless and helpless. And just to get a better grips of what he is saying, just imagine for yourself two weeks ago in the city of Houston, where the citizens of that beloved city endured the torrentous, painful, destructive winds and waves of Hurricane Harvey, where thousands of people lost their homes, thousands of people lost their jobs, their livelihoods, too many people lost their lives, too many loved ones were lost in people's lives. Winds and waves, when they come crashing upon us, is so horrific. And Harvey was a clear example of it to where even the governor of Texas at one point said that it was unprecedented to the level of destruction that Houston had to endure two weeks ago. And here's what's so crazy about this. These winds and waves, right, were not in the middle of the deep sea ocean far away from any safe shore. This came onto our home turf on mankind's home court advantage. It was crashing upon the land of mankind where they had access to human resources, to technological advancements, to infrastructures that are way beyond any other ancient world. And yet even with that, The winds and the waves that came upon Houston utterly destroyed that city. Clearly, wind and waves are powerful images of the destructive power that life can sometimes throw at us. And that's the metaphor that Paul utilizes to describe the kind of chaos and the kind of destruction that the world is currently living in. Consider these words from Bible scholar uh, Dr. Ray Stedman. How he reflects on what Paul says in verse 4. He says this. This is a revolutionary age. The hurricane winds of change are howling around the world. The human race seeds with unrest and rebellion. Our political institutions are polarized, divided to the left and right, with little common ground in the center. Despite the signs of current prosperity, our debt-ridden, hair-triggered economy seems destined to collapse. We have barred and deadbolted our homes, making ourselves prisoners, while in our neighborhoods criminals roam free, graffiti-tagging and shooting at random and filling our hearts with fear. With everyday headlines, with every new atrocity or terrorist attack, we see more evidence that there is a very thin line that separates civilization from anarchy. We seem to be approaching not just a political breakdown, but a cultural breakdown. Now, when you read these words from Dr. Stedman, you may think, wow, did he write this yesterday? It sounds like he is uniquely describing the current political, cultural, socioeconomic climate that we're living in now. But yet, here's what's crazy. Dr. Stedman died in 1992. And this quote came from a book that he wrote back in 1972, over 40 years ago. And when you consider the fact that Paul penned his words describing the chaos that the world was in, over 2,000 years ago tells us, then if you want to utilize this idea of a hurricane, crashing winds and waves coming upon civilization, bringing chaos, this thing has not died down. It has not diminished in power. The world has and still is being consumed by powerful waves and winds of, 
of pain and sorrow and misery to where we ask the question, what in the world can the world look to for hope in the midst of such brokenness and chaos? Well, Paul tells us in our passage, starting in verse 4, we read the following. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all in all. Notice how Paul utilizes that word one over and over again. One, 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 seven times to be exact. What is Paul telling us here? He is telling us that there is only one thing and one thing only that is able to undermine the dangers of the chaos of life, the storms of life that is against human civilization. And that one thing is God. God. And not just any God, but the triune God. God the Father who is over all and in all. God the Son to whom we have faith in, to whom we participate in his baptism. God the Spirit who unites us to the Father, to the Spirit, and with each other, making us one body, the church. And here's what's so interesting. Before he introduces to us the triune God in verses 5 to 6 and parts of verse 4, he begins with the body, with the church, with the people of God. Before he reveals the hope of the world is the triune God of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he begins by saying that we are first one body. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. The only way the world can have access to the triune God, who is the only hope of the world, is through the church. Let me say that again. The only way the world can have access to the triune God, who is the only hope for the world, is through the people of God, the body of Christ, the church. Consider these words from Pastor Tony Evans. This is what he says. The church is the most important institution on earth. The church and only the church has been commissioned by the sovereign Lord to be his representative agency in history. It has been given the sole authority to unlock the treasures of the spiritual realm so that they can be brought to bear on the realities of earth. Thus, as the church goes, so does everything else. God designed the church to be the epicenter of culture, and the church's strength or weakness is a major determining factor in the success or failure of human civilization. When the church is strong, the culture is impacted positively, even if the powers that be in particular places don't realize that impact and seek to marginalize and persecute the church. But when the church is weak, its influence deteriorates, and so does the culture. So does the culture. Putting all this together, why does the world need the church? The world needs the church because the church is the only place where it can give to the world what the world needs. The only hope for the world, and that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our triune God. Only God is going to be able to be the hope you need when the storms of life hit you big time. And can we have those uh, five reasons why people don't go to church anymore for just a moment? Consider this for a moment. When the storms of life come crashing into your life, whatever manifestation that could be, do you think any of these reasons are going to alleviate or bring comfort to you in that moment? Will the lack of social pressure to go to church really comfort you when you've lost your job? Well, when you have other options to do Sunday mornings, watch a football game, you know, go travel, is that going to alleviate the moments when you are crashed and burned by the storms of life? Is the fact that you can travel and be mobile and go wherever you want to go, is that going to alleviate the troubles that come when the storms of life come in and intrude and destroy everything that you have going on in your life? Will more work do that? And some of you are like, well, what about family? Yeah, when the storms of life hit, my family can help me, sure. 
But what happens if it's your family that has been taken away from you because of the storm? Whether it's cancer, whether it's premature death, whether it's suicide. The reason why Paul will not be persuaded by this list of reasons to evidence that the world no longer needs a church because he knows there's only one thing and one thing only that brings hope to us, real, tangible hope, when life is falling apart because the storms of life are crashing onto you, and that is God, God alone, which again is why this world needs a church because it is only the church that offers the hope of the world, that only offers the triune God. Now, with that said, it does beg the question, how exactly does a church offer God to the world? How do we as God's people offer the triune God to the world? And to explain that, let me go to my next point, what the world needs a church to do. Read again with me verse 15 of our passage. If we could have it up there, please. Paul writes the following, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Here Paul tells us very clearly what the world needs a church to do in order for the church to bring blessings to the world, to offer the triune God to the world. He says it right in the middle of verse 15. Grow up. Grow up. For those of you who are wondering if I just came up with this idea by myself, if I just made up this notion of grow up, no. I got it right here in Ephesians 4, where Paul says it right here. Grow up. You see, Paul is telling us that the way the church, God's people, are able to offer God to the world is when they grow up, when they spiritually mature. And if you've been a part of this ministry, you know that this is our main thing. This is our main mission. And for those of you visiting us today, you might be thinking, well, what's so significant about growing up? What's so special about being spiritually mature? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to answer another question. What exactly do we mean by spiritual maturity? What is spiritual maturity? I can think of no better answer than the one provided by theologian Sinclair Ferguson, Listen to how he defines spiritual maturity. In a word, spiritual maturity equals Christ-likeness. No other standard may be allowed to substitute. All other standards will be lesser man-made alternatives that disguise the all-demanding standard God sets before us in the scriptures. In other words, to be spiritually mature is to be like Jesus. To be just like Jesus, to conform every aspect of your life, your attitudes, your passions, your commitments, your priorities... Your loves has to be in conformity, has to be identical to Jesus himself. This is what Paul is saying when he says in verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are to grow up to be like Jesus in every way. That is what Paul is saying here. And by the way, Paul is not the only one who says this. Other key prominent leaders in the New Testament say the same thing. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is what? Your example, and you must follow in his steps. The Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John chapter 2. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And finally, our Lord Jesus himself says it in John 13. I have given you an example to follow Do as I have done to you. Christian, listen. The main purpose of your life is not to get married and have kids. The main purpose of your life is not to be successful in your career, make lots of money. The purpose of your life is not to have status so that you can make your parents proud. The purpose of your life, your Christian life, your whole life while you're on this earth, 
is to be like Jesus. That's it. That is it. That is it. If, where, if you do that, you have fulfilled your human life. You have achieved the apex, the goal, the meaning of your life, the meaning of all human life. Now, some of you are hearing this, you're like, well, I don't understand why that's the case. What, again, is so significant about spiritual maturity? What is so significant of being like Christ? Well, think about it. What did Jesus come to do when he came to earth 2,000 years ago? You can say, well, he came to heal the sick and feed the poor. He came to forgive us of our sins by dying on the cross as our substitute. He came to give us eternal life and we put our faith in him as our personal Lord and Savior. Yes, yes, yes. He came to do those things. But guess what? That was not his ultimate concern. That was not his ultimate agenda. What was Jesus' ultimate goal? What was his ultimate reason to why he came? Do you know what it is? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 tells us clearly. Can we have it up there? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. One more time. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you, you meaning you, me, and the whole world, to God. Jesus' ultimate concern was to give you and I and to give the whole world God. Jesus' ultimate concern was to give you himself, the Son. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus' ultimate concern was to give to you his Father. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would have known who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus' ultimate concern was to give us the Holy Spirit. John 16, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. Jesus' ultimate concern was, is, and will always be to give the world the triune God, to give his Father, himself, and his Spirit to everybody. That's his main mission. We're dying on the cross, rising from the dead. Those were just means to fulfill that ultimate agenda. Now, do you realize what that means when it comes to your spiritual maturity? If spiritual maturity means that you are like Christ, you think like Christ, you prioritize what Christ prioritized, you value what he values, and you want to put his things first, that he puts first? And if his ultimate agenda was to give the world God, what does that mean? The more you're like him, the more you're going to want to have that as your ultimate agenda too, right? Where the more you mature, the more you're like Jesus, the more his ultimate agenda becomes your ultimate agenda where you feel that the purpose of life is for you to be an agent of God, to give to the world the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is why the world needs the church to mature. Why it needs for us to grow up. So that we could capture the same priority, the ultimate priority that Jesus had, which is to give to the world what the world desperately needs. In the chaos and storms that it is right now, it needs the triune God who is the hope of the world. You see? Now, with all that said, we come to the question, how exactly can we spiritually mature? So that in our Christ-likeness, from our maturity, we can give to the world what the world desperately needs through Jesus. And this leads me to my final point. 
how the church is able to meet this need. Read again verse 11 to 13 of our passage where Paul writes the following, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul tells us right here how God's people can mature to where they can bless the world by giving the world what it needs, God. And it's going to be a surprise for those of you who grew up going to church. Read again what he says in verse 12, uh, excuse me, 11 and 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. According to Paul, the way God matures his people is through spiritual leaders, through apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. And because we no longer have apostles and prophets anymore, and if I can't go into that right now. If you have questions about why that's the case, come see me. I'll give you a bunch of books to read, and then come talk to me afterwards. That means the only three spiritual leaders that we have in this era of the church are evangelists, shepherds, which are basically ruler el- ruling elders, elders, and teachers, teachers of the word of God, preachers like myself, right? And in our modern parlance, these three would be the equivalent of the church planter, the evangelist who starts a church, and then you have the shepherd and teachers who work together with elders and pastors to mature the church. And given that our focus for today's message is to mature, let's focus on these last two, okay, these two spiritual leaders, pastors and elders. Consider what Paul says about shepherds and teachers in verse 8. What does he refer to them as? He calls them what? God's gifts. God's gifts. (laughs) According to Paul, Pastors and elders are God's gifts to the church. And some of you are like, that makes no sense. Because for some of us, if we're honest with our experiences, we think pastors and elders can be like curses of Satan rather than gifts of God sometimes, right? But Paul says, no. God has given us pastors and elders as gifts to the church. One of the main reasons why he died was to give gifts to his church, which includes pastors and elders, And the question is, how exactly are pastors and elders gifts to the church? I already told you. Pastors and elders are the means God uses to mature his people, to be Christ-like. Again, verse 12, to equip the saints of the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Pastors and elders are God's gift to you because they are called by God to help you mature and fulfill your main objective of growing up so that as you grow up, you can give to the world what Christ has given to the world, what Christ has given to you. You give to the world the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But now we come to the question, how exactly do pastors and elders mature God's people? How? Paul tells us in verse 14, actually, in an indirect way. Let's read it one more time. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scheme. Remember what I said in my first point with regards to verse 14, that Paul is describing the chaos the world is currently in with this metaphor of winds and waves like a massive type 5 hurricane descending upon us, right? And notice what he says is the origin of this chaos. What is the source of this chaos? He says it's doctrine. Doctrine. You guys know what doctrine is? 
Doctrines are basically ideas that people believe are true that govern how they look at themselves, how they look at other people, how they look at the world. Okay? It's basically a worldview. Ideas are doctrines. Doctrines are ideas. And here's what Paul is saying. Certain ideas are very bad because the consequences of believing in these ideas and embracing these ideas could lead to things like human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And if you think about it, that's so true, is it not? Think about all the miseries that mankind has inflicted on this world. At its root, it would all be because there's a certain idea, certain ideology, certain worldview that was driving those people to those kinds of actions. I was recently watching a, a debate between a non-Christian, an atheist, Bill Maher, with a Christian, a New York Times best-selling author named Ross Duthat. And in this debate, they came to this exchange. Bill Maher starts off, someone once said that to have a normal person commit a horrible act almost never happens without religion. For how people get on a plane and fly it into a building, it had to be religion. Ross Duthat, I think it's true that for a normal person to commit a crazy act, it does take ideas... But those ideas can be secular and religious, Bill Maher. But mostly in history of mankind has been religion, Ross thought. Not in the 20th century, not in the Soviet Union, a lot of dead bodies there, not a lot of Christians except among the dead bodies, Bill Maher. Uh, right. <laughs> ideas or doctrines are capable of causing real horrific evil in this world to where it would result as a response more horrific evil creating this cyclical thing kind of like a hurricane catching up speed and catching up power causing more devastation than ever before but Paul says the opposite is true if you have the right ideas if you have the correct doctrine instead of causing catastrophic chaos it could actually bring shalom and blessings doctrines like Paul says, the knowledge of the Son of God, verse 14, right? Where by embracing these ideas, embracing these doctrines can result in you being a source of blessing to where those who are recipients of that blessing recycle it out and bring more blessing to the world as a result of it. And believe it or not, that is how elders and pastors are able to help the church to mature. Because here's how it works. Teaching elders like myself teach doctrine. Elders like myself and ruling elders together, we live out this doctrine. We live out these ideas to where it creates blessing to recipients, namely God's people, to where they get encouraged, they get inspired, to where they go out into the world and pass on those same blessings as well, to where it cycles through from the church to the world, to the glory of God. When people of God are blessed by the leaders who believe and live out the doctrines of the gospel... They pass that gospel blessing out into the world. They pass out the triune God who is the source of all blessings forevermore. Elders and pastors primarily help the church to mature by being an example to the people of God. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example, Paul says to the Corinthians, as I follow the example of Christ. Now some of you are reading that, you're like, uh... Paul, that sounds a little arrogant. What do you mean that they should follow your example? Are you putting on par your example to Christ's example to where you are basically saying that you're like Christ to the Corinthians? Are you saying that your example is just as good, just as stellar as the example of Christ? Shouldn't you say instead that you should 
follow the example of Christ? Who are you to say follow my example as I follow the example of Christ? But if that's what you're thinking, you're totally missing the point. Who is Paul? He is the pastor of the Corinthian church. He is the elder, right? And when he says, follow my examples, I follow, he's not in any way implying that he is on par with Jesus or that he is inherently superior to the Corinthians in value in the eyes of God. Rather, what he is saying is, look, guys, look at my life. Look at who I used to be. I was a hater of Jesus. I killed followers of Jesus. And look at what the gospel has done to me. Look at how the power of the gospel has penetrated my life to where God has called me to do this work for his kingdom. Imagine what that power can do for you. That's Paul's main point. When Paul is exhorting the people of the church to follow the example of elders and pastors, he is not in any way implying the inherent superiority of pastors and elders to the rest of the other Christians out there. No, no. He is telling us that pastors and elders are real examples of what happens when a person who has been rescued from the storms of life by the power of God, by the master of the sea himself, by the gospel, you see? In other words, pastors and elders are living proof that the gospel has the power to change anyone from being the most hopeless, the most wretched, the most disturbed, the most perverted people into becoming instruments of change where it can bring inspiration and collateral blessings for others to pass on to those around them. That is what Paul is saying. This is how the church matures, when pastors and elders are able to display the power of the gospel working in their lives to where they can be inspiring examples to their members. To their members. Think about it. If Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 up there, follow the example of Christ, do you know what the Corinthians would have thought? How can I follow Christ's example? He is God in the flesh. He's perfect. He's the son of God. How could I possibly be like him? But if he says, follow my example as I follow Christ, ah, now the Corinthian says, hey, if a cold-blooded killer like Paul can be transformed by the gospel and follow Christ, I can follow Christ too. Even if I'm a pervert, even if I'm addicted to porn, even if I'm a drug addict, even if I am the biggest loser of all, even if I'm unemployed and unable to work, even if people around me say I am worthless, because someone like Paul exists, because he can display the power of the gospel as an example to me as my pastor, as my elder, I have faith in the power of the gospel. I have faith in the power of the gospel. Pastors and elders are gifts to the church, not because they're awesome people. Quite the opposite. Pastors and elders are despicable people, maybe even more despicable than those they're called to eventually serve. But they become awesome people because of the power of the gospel is working in them, that same power that is given to you as you grow up in the gospel, as you mature in your faith. Consider these words from theologian Donald McNair when he writes this. Without good leadership, the kind that looks to God for direction, the church runs aground or drifts aimlessly without a rudder. Without good leadership, the kind that looks to God for strength and vitality, the church suffers from lack of nourishment. 
The church today needs godly leaders who are able to guide the church into the will of God using the truths of Scripture. God's people struggle as aliens in a hostile world and without good leaders are subject to being led astray. They constantly face ethical decisions that require the guidance of spiritual men. Even if their leaders do not know the answers to all the questions they confront, they can still provide the maturity and wisdom that helps members of the flock make their way in the world. Leadership in the church is more than answering questions and setting courses. It's demonstrating the power and presence of the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. Christians are in need of the healing, the shepherding, the discipling, the disciplining, and the model that a leader of God's people have been set apart to give. The people need to see Jesus Christ demonstrated to them in the lives of their leaders. In the lives of their leaders. I know many of you in here are so reluctant to judge pastors, to judge elders, because he's a pastor. He's an elder. Guess what? I'm a pastor, and I hate it when pastors and elders abuse their authority. Because you know what that means? It means pastors like me have to pick up the pieces of pastors who wound and scar the sheep to where it just takes more time, more energy, more suffering to get the flock back to where they need to be and be a blessing to the world. Don't judge pastors. I'll do them. I'll judge them for you. But we need pastors. We need elders. Because they are God's gifts to the church that empower you to grow up so that you can go out and give to the world what the world desperately needs. Folks, this world is in chaos. The difference between a real hurricane and the metaphorical hurricane that Paul is describing here is that this hurricane doesn't slow down, it doesn't weaken, it's ongoing, it has not stopped since Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree. See, hurricanes that we struggle with, are they're just seasonal. We don't have to worry about them maybe once a year, once a decade. The hurricane of sin, the hurricane of brokenness as a result of sin is going on still and it has not weakened. What are we going to do? What are you going to do when the people in your life, the people that you love are suffering? When the winds of of chaos and brokenness and sin descend upon them, what are you going to offer them when you have been placed in their life to show them the hope of Christ, of the Father, of the Spirit? Some people have asked in these 10 months, why is NCF doing this now? Why? What's the rush for elders? Why now? My reaction to that is, why have we taken so long? Some of you guys are hurting. Some of you guys have storms in life. You have me, you have Pastor James, and we love you guys, and we want to do everything that we can, but we're just two people. And he's only been here for a year, so for seven years, it's only been me. How are you going to survive? How are you going to endure? What if I die? What if I get sick? What if I'm called elsewhere? What are you going to do? How are you going to be a source of blessing to this world? How are we going to fulfill this mandate that God has called us to live out? That's exactly how I feel, brother. The world needs us. That's why we need elders now. Your parents need you. That's why we need elders now. Your wife needs you. That's why we need elders now. 
The city needs you. That's why we need elders now. And at this point, this is why, by God's grace, by an answer to prayer that has lasted for three years now, that we'll finally be able to see the Holy Spirit confirming this call that I've prayed for for eight years here. Let's be a blessing to the world and let's ask for God's gifts to enable us to be that blessing so that we can grow up and go out with the gospel. I pray that you'll really hear me when I say that and that you'll understand the significance of it all when it comes to the importance of elders. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace. We need your gifts. Father, these are not gifts that just merely tickle our fancy. These are not just things that make us feel like we're so special, as if we've been given a new toy or we've been given a new dress or a new trinket to play with. Lord, these gifts are life-giving. These gifts are what separate us from human civilization that flourish to human civilization that has been destroyed by sin and death. God, we need you to be among us now. And Lord, we have been waiting and we have been asking and pleading for you to equip us to grow up in the gospel so that we could go out in the gospel. Yet, Lord, we are lacking and we need your mercy to descend upon us. Father, would you hear our prayers now and help us to see the beauty and the hope that we have in the gospel as it will be expressed and on display through servant leaders who love you and love your people. Father, we know one day NCF will have elders. Maybe some of, some of them are here now within our congregation. Maybe some have yet to grace our doors. Father, we pray for them. We pray for their families. We pray for their call. And when the time comes, you will raise them up so that this body could be edified this body can be built up, can grow up so that we can go to the world and show them one God, one Father, one Son, one Spirit who, can really, who is the only one who can save us from all the chaos that we are enduring through now. Lord, have mercy on us and be with us for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.